Hello, once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jackson Eflin. Thank you for joining us for issue eight of our comics bracket. This week, we'll be discussing 2008's Wanted, as well as 2009's Watchmen. Whew. Yeah. That exasperation is partly due to this being the last match of round one of our comics bracket. The Silver Age, you might say. And part of that is because both of these films are a lot. Oh boy, howdy are they. The 90s edgelordism of The Mask and the Crow has given way to naughty's edgelordism of uh, Wanted and Watchmen, and it's about the same, but with better graphics. So, as we did with our films last week, we are going to include a content warning here for sexual assault, violence against women, massive amounts of misogyny. If you don't want to engage with that, totally understandable. You have been warned. You now have 20 seconds to comply. With that out of the way, let's go ahead and get into our plot summaries. Alright, so for Wanted, Act 1 is just Harry Potter, but the unhappy nobody is named Wesley. He finds out his dad was a magical assassin. Dumbledore is Morgan Freeman, and Hagrid is Angelina Jolie. This assassin cult gets their targets by setting the imperfections in the loom of fate. Wesley becomes a proper assassin, and Cross's name comes up. Cross was a former assassin who killed Wesley's dad. Wesley and Fox, played by Angelina Jolie, go to kill him. But after Wesley shoots him, Cross reveals he was Wes's dad all along, and the assassins were just using him. Fox tells Wesley that his name came up, but Wesley escapes. He learns from his dad's confidant that Morgan Freeman's name came up, and Morgan Freeman hit it, and started making his own targets. Wesley goes back to Hogwarts for assassins and fights his way to the inner sanctum, revealing Morgan Freeman's treachery. Morgan Freeman reveals that every assassin's name came up. If they want to live, they have to go along with his new regime. Fox elects to shoot all of them and then herself. Wesley finishes Morgan Freeman off and then monologues to the audience about taking control of your destiny. Going into this, there is no good way to summarize the plot of Watchmen with brevity. So this is more of a back cover blurb. In an alternate version of 1985, a former masked vigilante and government spook, Edward Blake, alias the comedian, is thrown out the window of his New York apartment. Other former masks, Ozymandias, Dr. Manhattan, Silk Spectre, and Night Owl, as well as Rorschach, who is still operating against the law, are pulled into the conspiracy surrounding his death and find themselves targeted in various ways. The vigilantes eventually find the truth that one amongst them is behind it all, and it's all been part of a plot to end the Cold War by creating a tragedy so massive that the world is forced to come together in peace. The plan succeeds, but leaves the cast with various moral qualms and fighting amongst each other about how to live with this horrible knowledge. The film ends with more questions than answers. That's pretty good. There's a lot of ins and outs, and we would spend 20 minutes just getting into all of that. To give our listeners at home context, both of us take notes during our watchings and the research thereafter. My notes for Watchmen are three to four times longer than anything else I've done for any of our episodes. Usually I have about a page of notes. My Watchmen notes take up an entire page and I had to start writing the margins. And that's including checking out for about the last third of the movie. We will try and get into all of our thoughts, but first, let's tackle Wanted. Okay, so this is based on a Mark Miller comic from the early noughties, which has been described as Watchmen for Supervillains. I'm not sure who wrote that. The article doesn't exist anymore. Probably for the best. They were wrong. It's a little different. 
instead of this very sleek, mystical assassins thing, with a light bit of superpower to them, but not m much beyond they can curve bullets, <laughs> which is amazing. It's set in a legally distinct version of the DC universe, where all the superheroes were, were defeated by the supervillains teaming up, and then they used all their combined skills, magics, and technology to erase the collective memory of superheroes and make the superheroes live crummy lives. So instead of a group of assassins, they're more just a cabal of supervillains running the world. The plot is comparable, but with more uh, allusions to Clayface, but not, and slightly blacker Vandal Savage, etc. And boy howdy, if you want to see a lot of legally distinct superheroes getting murdered in ways that are very referential so you know who they are, and a lot of supervillains having the same thing go on, this is the book for you. So, divorced from everything else, that sounds like an interesting premise that I would read a comic about. But knowing what the film that it was adapted into, that sounds like the most boring shit ever. Mm-hmm. So, it's six issues long, and we spend most of our time with supervillains or supervillain associates. And very little of that is devoted to understanding why they do their supervillainy. It could have been a really interesting opportunity to explore how people can be drawn in, into a regime based on powerful rhetoric, or something that it brings to them, or how one person with a plan can make people who don't really care motivated towards something bad. But we get very little of that. Fox, the Angelina Jolie character, talked a little bit about how when she was young and living in the project, your options were either going into supervillainy or going into sports, and she was too short to play basketball, so she became a supervillain. A very thinly veiled Catwoman. And by thinly veiled, I mean she doesn't wear a lot of clothes. Is Fox a woman of color in the comic? Oh, Fox is definitely black. <sighs> um, so is Wesley's boss. We didn't really talk about it in the summary, but Wesley has a boss who's an asshole, and she's also black in the comics. And who boy, the number of times that someone reminds him that his boss is black and a woman and possibly a lesbian is a lot. He should feel ashamed for that, for letting a person like that talk down to him, a straight white man. I hate this comic so much. Well, let's talk into the film, which sounds tentatively better than that comic, which I have not read. <laughs> It is slightly better if only because the main character isn't a rapist, so that's great. Yeah, I hate this comic so much. Because there's less shit going on with it, the streamlining of things to be just an assassin cult makes for a cleaner film. There is an opportunity to have more fun with it. I do enjoy like legally distinct versions of a well-known universe that we play with. That can be fun. But I think for what the film was doing, it was okay to have just small assassin cults. Very simple plot. I also feel that it would have been more difficult to film that sort of movie and not step on legal rights and all that sort of stuff. If they attempted to do that sort of thing, it probably would have resulted in a lot of legal battles. Yeah. Also, the film introduces two things. One, the Loom of Fate, which is really cool. They have a big loom, and when the threads uh, go in wrong, they can convert that into a code, and that spells out names, and those names are who needs to be assassinated because they're bad people. That's a cool premise. I'm going to put it in every D&D campaign I ever run, even if the players never find out. It's out there. So Fox in the comics is just Catwoman with guns. But here, as a kid, she had a negative experience that could have been prevented if someone had been more vigilant in enforcing the will of the Loom of Fate. So she has this ironclad faith in it. And it's really cool because you almost never see a character of a strong faith presented as not a villain in a thing that isn't like a faith-based narrative. Mm -hmm. I will not say that Wanted is completely devoid of good things. There's a lot of just fun, dumb action sequences in this film. Again, they can curve bullets if you, if you spin your gun right. And a lot of the action sequences, I was just quoting Dragon Ball Z abridged into my head with, That's really dumb. But, but he's so cool! 
But that's so dumb! <laughs> it is all of those things. And a lot of the action sequences look really good, but unfortunately, Wesley talks a lot during them, and boy howdy, I wish he would shut up. He's very bad. The character of Wesley is very, very bad. Right. James McAvoy portraying said character, I think, is pretty good. Yeah. He portrays the character very effectively. However, I hate the character a lot, so... Yes. That's no offense to James McAvoy, who has a lot of acting talent. Yes. And I think a lot of the reason that we dislike Wesley is because there's a distinct part of this film that is very much trying to be Fight Club. Mm -hmm. From the look of the film, which even my wife, who doesn't have that sort of critical eye, definitely picked up on, there's a character in the film named Darden, and there's also a character in the film named the Repairman, who looks an awful lot like Brad Pitt in the film. Mm -hmm. And there's also the same issues of this intense toxic masculinity and self-hatred. While Fight Club, I think, is trying to unpack them, this film barely is. Mm -hmm. And if we get into the whole Fight Club trying to unpack them, but the way Fight Club frames a lot of it, it's not very apparent that it's satire, like the book it's based on is. And I think that's one of the problems of Fight Club. And I think that problem in Fight Club led to this film a number of years later. And much like Fight Club, it has some issues of sexism and issues of fat phobia that are really gross. And also issues with mental health. <laughs> yeah. And societal misanthropy, etc. Yeah. Let's start digging into those. I don't wanna. We can dig into the issues of sexism and fat phobia and societal misanthropy in this film, but honestly, just imagine just going for about five minutes and you got a good enough approximation of how I feel. Let's talk about the Loom of Fate. I think it's really cool that there is this loom of fate that is telling these assassins who needs to die in order to make the world a better place. That's a cool concept. And because no one in the film seems to know why this is happening, and we later reveal that Morgan Freeman was lying about some of it, so it might not even be true at all, it raises a lot of interesting questions. You have to take a lot of unfaith, and you don't know, like, is it like a deity or um, some sentient force causing this? Is it just random chance this is happening? We don't really know. And that could be really cool, but we don't really know much about who is being picked out by the Loom of Fate for realsies. We never see how any given person's death is changing things, or if, you know, this is a bad dude and who needs to be gone, or this is some random bystander, but their death will has, have a chain of reaction that causes something else to happen. That could have been a cool thing to explore, and it wouldn't have taken too long to show just one of those, or to actively not show that and to leave some ambiguity. We do have the Angelina Jolie monologue about the murderer who the loom put a hit on, but that person got away, but that's only one example. And part of it is the loom doesn't come into play until over halfway through the film, because the first portion of the film is just setting up Wesley and how crappy his life is and how misanthropic he is and how much he hates himself for failing to live up to these masculine ideals that society has set upon him. You want to hear something sad? I need an ergonomic keyboard to keep my repetitive stress injury in check. Just the fact that I repeat something enough that it causes me stress is fucking sad. And the assassin killer having to just, like, beat the weakness out of him. All those training montages and all that sort of stuff. That's a good chunk of the film there, and then we're finally introduced to the loom, and then we get into what we thought was going to be the climax of the film, then we get the twist, and then it's Wesley turning against the people who have trained him. 
And yeah, I think the loom of fate and that whole thing is the most interesting part of this movie. And I also think this movie would have worked a lot better as a ensemble thing. And if there was less of a focus on Wesley, because he's such a terrible character. Although the type of people that this sort of film is marketed for, especially back in 2008, probably ate their shit up. Right. Whereas Angelina Jolie is actually a very interesting character. She has cool conflicts. She has baggage that's worth unpacking, etc. This is definitely one of those female psychic should have been the main character things. And honestly, if it, I doubt this is getting a remake anytime soon, but if it does, I feel like that would be kind of the like feminist reboot version would be Angelina Jolie protagonist. It would yeah. be super easy to do. Yeah, a lot of times it does feel like Angelina Jolie is there as eye candy. There's a couple of scenes with her nude viewed from the back. We also see Chris Pratt's flabby butt. Also, if you've ever wanted to see a film where Star-Lord is fucking Professor X's girlfriend, this is the film for you. <laughs> what a strange combination of things. The MCU crossover we never knew we wanted. Yep, Iron Man came out that same year. Oh, wow. They plan ahead real well. <laughs> God. Anyway, that is a aspect of this that we could probably get into. So Wesley has a girlfriend, and she is having an affair with his best friend, Chris Pratt. At one point, after vanishing for a month or so to be an assassin, he comes back to show much of a man he's been to his girlfriend, and she's presented as being unreasonable for having moved on to his best friend and not thinking he's cool now, but he vanished out of nowhere with no warning, not telling her where he was going after having an outburst at work. It is totally reasonable for her to not think that it's cool and I'm on her side. It's presented as him like taking his power back from this shrill harpy who had him locked down or whatever. And I'm like, no, this is, I hope she makes it out of this. Okay. I don't care about Chris Pratt in this scene because mm, Chris Pratt's in some shit recently, but fair enough. Although I did have a slightly different reading of that thing. He's going back for the gun that's stashed in the toilet tank. Oh, yeah. His dad's gun, or so he thinks. And so I understand, like, why he's going back and why that's important to him. It makes sense at that portion of the film. And it didn't really seem to me that Wesley was walking in trying to show off, but more so that... Fox was completely unwilling to let Wesley's girlfriend or ex-girlfriend say those things after the quote-unquote progress that he has made mm. and kind of inserts herself into everything and he goes along with it. That's fair. And I, like, I don't want to dismiss how shitty the film treats the character of Wesley's ex-girlfriend because it's bad. But yeah, I'm not going to necessarily put the blame entirely on Wesley for that scene. That's fair. I'm going to get mixed up with the comic where, there, where it's a little more shitty on the Wesley character. Fair enough. I know we keep circling back to Angelina Jolie, but... She's the best part of this film. Best part of the film. And her scene at the end is really good. So they've all found out that their names were came up from the Luma phase and they were all marked for death, but they've been spared by Morgan Freeman, as one often is by Morgan Freeman in these movies. And because standard operating procedure for people who use guns is to all stand in a circle where they could easily hit each other if they miss, whatever. The room is circular and they're surrounding him so he has no place to escape. I guess that's reasonable tactics then. Whatever. Anyway, they all find out about this and they're all kind of having the faces of, oh, yeah, let's survive this and just go along with Morgan Freeman's God complex thing. Fuck the code. And Angelina Jolie just closes her eyes and has this like look of utter serenity as she fires a bullet that curves perfectly all the way around the room, hits every single person in the room, and then her with one shot. It looks cool. It's a cool conclusion of her arc. It's a really well-shot scene. Mm -hmm. And it is the kind of encapsulation of the dumb physics bullshit <laughs> that is bending the bullets. 
a lot of this film feels like it was specifically cultivated to appeal to 13 to 16 year old boys, which all the action sequences totally get that, but it also scares the crap out of me because of all the toxic masculinity and misogyny on display. I've been in the film Wesley monologues about how six weeks ago I was ordinary and pathetic, just like you. How he's moved on from what he wasn't supposed to be and how he's killed Morgan Freeman and then he fires the shot and turns to the camera and is like What the fuck have you done lately? As if like what he's done has been like a good escaping the prison that is the corporate workforce and while I'm all for escaping the prison of the corporate workforce this is not a great way to do it and also I work for a food bank? I'm pretty okay with what I've done with my day, really. It felt so shitty and so low, and so proving that the character hasn't really actually grown out of this toxic masculinity, and it's so gross feeling. Like yeah. you're saying, that's really scary if, you, if like the message of the film is, hey, you should take control by doing violence to your coworkers to get out of it. It's uncomfortable. Yeah, and it's Wesley specifically projecting all of the insecurities and terrible outlooks that he had at the beginning of the film onto the audience. And he's lived with all of those insecurities and things like that. Why would you voice that on someone else? Right. You talked about how it's a really easy missed opportunity if Morgan Freeman had been like a encapsulation of all his toxic masculinity and finding out that he was the bad guy made Wesley realize, oh, this is wrong, I should get out of that, and how it could have really redeemed this whole story. Yeah. Viewing this through a 2019 lens and the problems with toxic masculinity and its associations with hate groups and that sort of thing, Wesley is the exact type of person that those hate groups prey on and they prey on their insecurities created by these toxic masculine ideals and they draw them in to do violence and this film could have been such a great way to call that out and point out all of the misplaced anxiety that those vulnerable men feel and it shouldn't be against women and people of color it should be against the people who are promoting these toxic masculine ideals that make you feel like shit mm -hmm. and especially with morgan freeman's whole god complex thing that could have been a really good thing of like getting rid of the toxic masculine influences that are messing up society thing it was so easy and yet yeah we're 10 years on things are very different now than they were then mm -hmm. well I don't want to say very different, but cultural understanding has shifted in those 10 years. God's blessed the Me Too movement. Yeah. One thing is a bit of a palate cleanser. There's a bit where Wesley slaps Chris Pratt with a keyboard and the keys spelling out fuck you just fly out in slow-mo uh, towards the camera. The second you is one of Barry's teeth. It's very gifable. Huh. So, having gotten the hard one out of the way, let's get into the uh, simple and easy to unpack Watchmen. Whew. So, for reasons that I'm sure made sense at the time, we decided to go with the ultimate cut that is almost four hours long. We did go with the ultimate cut specifically because I am nothing if not masochistically thorough. And the ultimate cut includes the animated portions of Tales of the Black Freighter, which is a story within the story of Watchmen that is used to kind of make some points and draw some comparisons between the narrator of that story and some of the characters within the comic. 
and it's used incredibly well in the original comic and it's used so poorly in the ultimate cut it could have been much worse actually Originally, uh, Zack Snyder intended to film all of it in live action in the same sort of style as 300, mm. but it would have cost an extra $20 million and the studio's like, no. Mm, thank you, studio. Um, it was also supposed to be intended in the actual theatrical cut of the film, but it made it too long. The ultimate cut's runtime is like an, three hours and 35 minutes. It's ridiculous. I will say, divorce from the rest of the film, just as as its own thing, the Tales of the, of the Black Freighter is a pretty compelling, tight little 20-30 minute animated yeah. feature. It's yeah. a, a chilling horror narrative with a lot of well-done gore if you're into that kind of thing. It's not my thing, but I acknowledge that it is very well done, and the psychological damage and big reveal of the end are compelling yes and they're used to great effect in the comic however they're not in the film because of the way the comic weaves the text of the comic into its own text via stylized speech bubbles but having the visuals of what's going on in the outside world is why marooned the specific story from tales of the black freighter works incredibly well for what it's trying to do by drawing associations and comparisons like towards the end of the comic as the narrator is realizing what he's done and the good intentions he had and this place of love has caused so much harm to his community it's juxtaposed with ozymandias talking about how he planned out his entire plot to kill three million people in New York to end the Cold War. It's incredibly effective there and elsewhere. But in the film, we cut away from all of the film and it's just these five to ten minute sections of this animated feature. There's really no interplay between what's going on in the film and what's going on in Tales of the Black Freighter and it just doesn't work. So it's just grinding the film to a halt to do this thing so that it's more like the comic it's based off of. Speaking of grinding the film to a halt, I respect trying to have a lot of character development in the film. That is a good thing. However, a lot of that is done via flashbacks. There's definitely a element of a legend universe where these characters have been doing crime-finding stuff for 40 years. A lot of baggage built up there. Fair enough. And a lot of the flashbacks will tell us things we either already knew or didn't need that much detail on. I know that not all of them are there in the theatrical version, so that might be a fault of the ultimate cut. But they often feel superfluous, and because we spend so long getting a granular look at one bad night that Rorschach had, or one conversation that Silk Spectre had with someone, Somebody. I get so focused on that and then maybe some of the tales of the Black Raider that I will forget that Adrian Veidt is in this movie or that Dr. Manhattan is having a tiff or whatever. Part of that is it doesn't do a good job of denoting when you're in a flashback. Everything just looks the same and they don't do a good job of setting a time and place. The comic doesn't really do this either. Like there's costuming and changes and whatnot, but the costuming changes are much more dramatic in the comic, especially because we're seeing the comedian drastically age. We have the same actor portraying the comedian in the film throughout the whole thing, and he always has the same haircut and always has the same mustache. And there's the original Minutemen 1940s costume, and then there's the costume that he wears during his time in Vietnam, and that's it. Whereas there's more iterations in the evolution of the comedian in the comic, and it helps iron out exactly where and when these things are taking place. 
honestly think for the scenes with the Minutemen having more sepia tones instead of the bluish hue that most of the film is cast in would have worked well. Or even many of the scenes having them be shot with a sort of like pinkish red hue to show that characters are looking at the past through rose-colored glasses might have been an interesting aesthetic choice so we don't really see much of it's you know blunts but whatever and that's another thing that really annoys me about the film is that the comic has such a good use of color for storytelling it often punctuates violence with shifting everything to red pink and orange hues to show you how stark and kind of grotesque everything is but that's something that the film doesn't do it's just constantly this poorly lit blue overtone over everything a big part of the fun of superheroes is that they, they often have colorful costumes which makes it kind of easy to tell who they are on an emotional level based on what their costumes are telling us and we don't really get much of that in the film because everything has this washed to it Another thing this film does that people have noticed is a theme with Zack Snyder that doesn't necessarily always work is using very well-known songs as part of a scene construction. Some of that works because it helps set the time period that some of these scenes are taking place in. The opening montage of it gives us a history from the 40s to the 80s to times they are changing. Good song, nicely shot. That's a pretty good bit. I like that bit. Yeah, it's not too bad, but there are others that do not work. During one of the sex scenes between Lori and Dan, (laughs) they play a really odd arrangement of Hallelujah, and both of us were just commenting more on how bad of a musical choice that was as opposed to the gratuitousness of that sex scene. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I love Hollywood. It's an amazing song. And looking at the way it has evolved over time is interesting. But at one point, someone asked Leonard Cohen how he felt about how frequently it had been covered. And he mentions how the use in Watchmen made people say that it should be put on a shelf for a bit and how he agreed. (laughs) So even Leonard Cohen thinks that you've done goofed. So a part of this film that annoyed me and the more I looked into it, I got more annoyed by it. It's a thing in the comics, I'm pretty sure, that the line where Rorschach mentions Even Adrian Veidt, possible homosexual, must investigate further. Yes, definitely in the comic. I am intrigued by Ozymandias as a character devoid of his sexuality. He is relatively complex and nuanced, even in this film, that does a pretty good job of um, bringing him to life. But they want to let us know that Ozymandias is definitely coded queer, but in a way to make him less as a nuanced, complex character and more queer as our villainous. We get other queer rep of sexual assault as part of a montage early in the film that I won't get into too much right now, but Ozymandias' computer has a like file labeled boys, which, boy, sure, I hope they're 18, but I don't think people call over 18 porn folders boys. Also totally constructed for the film, does not appear in the comic. Yep. And there are a few pink triangles in the film, and people might not know, but I don't know. The pink triangle has for a long time been associated with homosexuality. It was a badge used in concentration camps that was later reclaimed as a symbol of pride, and it was specifically flipped from point down to point up as a reclaiming, as a resisting fascism thing. Here, a lot of the triangles have their point down. That is comparable to having Rose of the Riveter being a housewife. It is incredibly frustrating how much it misses the opportunity to have the queer awareness and queer community building that was happening in the 80s be part of the film Mm -hmm. and doesn't. Now, a lot of this is also in the comic and there's a lot of queer bashing in the comic, but there's... inclusion of a couple really nuanced lesbian characters that do a little bit to, I can't know this for sure, but in my opinion, 
move that queer bashing away as this is how the author feels and more so this is what it's like in the mid 80s for gay people. There's a character in the comic named Joey who is a cab driver and she interacts with the news vendor Bernard throughout the comic and mentions some of her relationship troubles with her girlfriend. At the end of the comic, there's actually kind of a domestic disturbance on the street as her girlfriend's trying to break up with her and all this sort of stuff. They're definitely incredibly nuanced for a comic that came out in 1986 and 87. Right. And there's a long conversation to be had about the pros and cons of how you represent oppression to realistically portray things and who does and does not get to do that representation and all that jazz. But that's getting into the weeds of, of the comic that isn't really what we're doing here. Yeah. And also, I'm always wary of critiquing Alan Moore. I never know who might be listening. They say some of the trees are on his side. He is a very scary, powerful British wizard. Literally, he's a chaos magician. But getting into some of the problems that the film has with queer rep, it also has problems with some misogyny and male gaze. So... Zack Snyder, in general, as a filmmaker, there's a lot of machismo to his films. If you look at 300, this, Batman versus Superman, it's very apparent. I will not comment on Sucker Punch. I have not seen it, but it may work as a counterexample. I wouldn't bet the farm on that one. It may well be trying to. However, you know when you already have negatives to something and you roll low on a d20? It doesn't go well. But the way that some of the characters and some of the scenes in the film are portrayed in comparison to the comic is very in line with that machismo and that male gaze and women as objects of desire. The first very easily picked out example is how much more attractive Sally Jupiter is in the film as an older woman than she is in the comic. Part of that is choosing to age up the actress who portrayed Sally in the flashbacks with prosthetics and makeup. And that's Carla Gugino, who you might know from Ghost Ship and other films. You know, they also do the same thing with the actor who portrays the comedian, although the comedian is kind of ageless in the film, and that causes some problems. We've already talked about that. But there's also another character who appears in the film, both in those flashbacks and in the modern day, who uses two completely different actors, and that's Hollis Mason, the first Night Owl. So they didn't necessarily have to do that. They could have gotten away with two actors or casting a actress who was more in the middle of those ages and then aging down as well as up, maybe leading to some better contrast. But there's also the way that the sex scenes are filmed are much more titillating than they are in the comics. In fact, most of the sex scenes in the comics, they happen in dark shadows. You don't see a lot of what's going on. As a good example is the sex scene in the airship in the comic compared to what we got in the film. Although that button press of the flamethrower to signify orgasm is still in the comic. I'm honestly coming around on that. It's kind of... It's a nice little joke. I think the levity actually adds to the scene. However, if you take a look at the first sex scene between Dan and Lori when they're just on the couch in his living room, you're seeing a lot of what's going on in the film. Whereas in the comic, the focus isn't actually on them having sex. It's on what's still on the TV while they're having sex, which is 
Ozymandias actually doing a gymnastics performance on television and the juxtaposition of the commentators on what Ozymandias is doing and the comparison what's going on in the fumbling of Dan during the sex scene is really smart and gives a lot of insight into Dan as a character, which I think in general that the film doesn't do a good job of. That would also be a great opportunity to show Ozymandias' physical prowess, which is important for later fight scenes. Mm -hmm. We get a bit of that at one point, but it's good to have a reminder. Yeah. Uh, another small thing is after Rorschach's interrogation of Moloch, Rorschach's walking home, doing the whole Rorschach's journal narration thing. In the comic, he passes by some sex workers on the street, as he does in the film. In the comic, he just passes by them, and there's no commentary. They're just there. In the film, however, we are able to hear the sex worker propositioning Rorschach, Rorschach ignoring her, her showing her chest, and then telling him to fuck off and calling him a slur against gay men. Yep. The last and most egregious one is the way that the film treats the assault of Sally Jupiter by the comedian. Neither the comic nor the film do a great job of this. Neither is worse, they're just different. In the comic, it's shown to be incredibly brutal with how how the comedian is attacking her, and at the end, Sally is victim blamed by hooded justice and he says throw some clothes on wouldn't you or something to that effect in the film we don't have that victim blaming there is a little bit of the the same fighting and attacking of sally but uh, she's not as battered as she is in the comics however there's a lot more focus on the titillating aspects we get close-ups of sally's cleavage in her corset of her fishnet stockings, of the belt buckle on the comedian. It is unnerving. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of gratuitousness in this whole thing. That, the sex scenes you mentioned, even just the fight scenes are, they want you to see how crunchy those bones are. That gets into my next point, is how the film revels in the violence and the brutality of what's going on, where the comic definitely does not. Most of the fight scenes in the comic are going on with other dialogue on top of them, uh, usually from a different scene and kind of juxtaposing what's going on there with the violence of these fights and very often we've talked about the color palette shift that the comic will use to make you know that this is horrifying this is disgusting and you should know that i think one of the best examples of the way this film loves to revel in the violence is actually the assassination attempt on ozymandias in the comic he is walking in the lobby with his assistant and they're they're talking about business dealings and the gunman pulls out the gun fires a shot and it hits his assistant in the chest and she goes down senseless death of a woman eh, not the best however in the film gunman comes up from the elevator fires his first shot and it still hits the woman this time in her leg but we see the bullet fly through here we hear the bones crunch we see the blood splatter then as she begins to scream we get a close-up on her face she's holding her hand near it 
and the gunman fires his second saw and blows off a couple of her fingers. We're then watching as the gunman takes his last few shots, one of them puncturing one of the businessmen that he was dealing with and kind of seeing out after they had an argument. He just gets a clean shot right between the eyes. Yay, gendered violence. Comparing that scene in the comic to the way it's portrayed in the film does a lot to make me question whether Zack Snyder really got the themes of Watchmen as opposed to just the narrative. Pretty important to get the themes for Watchmen. Yes. Which kind of brings me to my last point, and that is the extent to which he softens Rorschach as a character. Oh boy. Don't get me wrong, Rorschach is pretty awful in the film, and uses a lot of slurs and makes light of a lot of people, but it's A, worse than the comic, and B, he is specifically called out quite a bit more on it in the comic. God, who do you, who do you think you are, Rorschach? You, you, you live off people while insulting them, and no one complains because they think you're a goddamn lunatic. I do want to get into some of the complicated nature surrounding Rorschach. Some of you may know that Alan Moore originally intended to use characters that were recently acquired by DC Comics from Charleston Comics as the characters for Watchmen. DC had other plans, and so Alan Moore filed the serial numbers off, changed their designs a little bit, and used them anyway. Legally distinct. Rorschach is specifically based off of The Question. The Question was created by Steve Ditko. Yes, that's Steve Ditko from Spider-Man. Steve Ditko, in the 60s, as he was developing this character, was moving further away from mainstream comics due to his political views about Randy and objectivism. And in part, the reason that Alan Moore wanted to use these characters so badly was to refute some of those political ideals that were espoused by these characters when... They were being used by Steve Ditko, as Alan Moore is self-admitted anarchist. Which does complicate things a bit, because Zack Snyder has, while not specifically come out as a objectivist, has specifically talked about his love for Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead, and has very much wanted to create a film adapting that work, which I believe is actually currently in pre-production. It might be in development hell, I don't know. But that kind of gives you the context of the fight around the way this character's portrayal. Now, I'm not specifically saying that Zack Snyder softened this character because of some political beliefs that he holds in commonality with the original creator and was not a fan of the way Alan Moore shit on that. But I'm not saying he didn't do that. I understand missing some of the more nuanced parts of Watchmen, but not getting that Rorschach is a bad guy, is that's, an, that's a big part of this. And it's apparent from page one how we're supposed to regard Rorschach in the comic. He is a vile human being, and there's a lot of things that have been cut from the film that make me think it was very deliberate to soften this character. There are a few points in the film where he talks about like his landlady being on welfare and people kind of mooching off the system, but he is constantly take, breaking into Dan's house and taking food. In fact, in the comics, Dan is constantly changing the locks because Rorschach keeps breaking in. Another major thing is the argument that Rorschach and Lori have after breaking Rorschach out is completely different. In in the film, it's just kind of slightly misogynist, and it's like, Good to see you in uniform, Daniel. You should have known all you needed was a nice pair of legs to motivate you. 
shitty but not the worst yeah whereas in the comic because of rorschach's behavior after they break him from jail laurie is specifically talking to dan that she regrets doing this why did we bother this dude's a complete and total asshole I think one of the big things is the film cuts a lot of Rorschach's admiration for the comedian. Now, the film never portrays the comedian in good light. It's You're not supposed to. It's kind of one of the major conceits of Watchmen is that the comedian is totally irredeemable. Mm-hmm. That's why there's a lot of tension between Lori and her mom about her parentage. But there's a lot of comparisons that other characters make between Rorschach and the comedian or the text makes between and juxtaposes to the point of when Rorschach confronts Ozymandias in the comic as opposed to Dan confronting him in the film, Ozymandias says that the comedian is practically a Nazi and Rorschach's like, well, he's a patriot doing his duty for his country. If you call him a Nazi, then I guess I'm one too. How do you miss this? Or where Rorschach is so enamored with the comedian's ethos and the way he operates that he's willing to just completely go to bat for him in the face of the rape allegations. So in the comic, Rorschach's a rape apologist. Wow. You're such an asshole, Rorschach. And there's other cuts to the film that lessen some of the criticism of conservative politics. In the film, Captain Metropolis is completely removed. It's Ozymandias trying to get everyone together as a full-on team. It's, it's the scene where the comedian burns the map. But in the comic, it's Captain Metropolis who's trying to get everyone together. And he has concerns over promiscuity, drugs, and campus subversion. <laughs> wait, wait, campus subversion? Yes, campus subversion. What does that even mean? My take is that it's indoctrinating liberals on college campuses. Oh, I thought it was going to be like integrating black and white campuses. That Never mind. I don't know. Could be that. Yeah. The softening of how awful a character Rorschach is and the removal of some of the criticisms of conservative politics and the male gaze that Snyder brings to Watchmen and his reveling in the violence really make me feel that he was a very poor choice to direct this film and that he really doesn't understand the themes of Watchmen, although he does really grasp the narrative. A lot of the cuts and compromises that he makes with the story are actually good and they kind of streamline things along incredibly well. Mm. But sometimes those are at the expense of theme. Right. Not getting into how these characters have changed the world a bit causes other dangling problems. So in the film, Ozymandias' plan is to make it look like Dr. Manhattan went boom on some cities, as a broad summary. But in the comic, he uses a genetically modified squid and then some other stuff to that. Uh, yeah, it's specifically trying to make it look like aliens from another dimension are invading. Right. And in the comic, that's a bit more foreshadowed because we have this genetically modified Lynx that he walks around with. And that kind of foreshadows the idea that genetic modification is a thing to a degree beyond what we have on Earth. Here, they don't really get into that. So he just has a giant blue cat walking around for reasons. And it's the kind of thing that it wouldn't be a problem if there was other more high sci-fi stuff in the film. But because there's so little, it's just like the blimps, the cat, and Dr. Manhattan. And so I keep wondering, where does this cat come from? Why is it here? Why is no one going, hey, what the fuck is that? So to cap off my thoughts on Watchmen, Watchmen feels less like an adaptation of the comic and more of what the equivalent of a video game port would be. Hmm, sure. 
Watchmen it came out in 86 and 87, and it's very much a product of its time. It's very much a product of the uncertainty of the Cold War. And I don't feel like the film does a good job of adapting and updating what that feels like. Part of it is, again, it came out in a bad time to do so. I think if Watchmen were coming out 10 years later, like today, it, there would be a lot more to get into. The Doomsday Clock at the beginning of film is further from midnight than it currently is in our world. For us, it's currently set at two minutes to midnight. Part of that is the geopolitical situation of Russia and Syria and the possibility of North Korea getting nuclear weapons. Part of that is global warming. And I think that today there could have also been some commentary and parallels between these superheroes who are going around unregulated without any sort of oversight to how a lot of people in the United States feel about our current policing situation and how they don't have enough oversight and how they are free to almost do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. uh, and then again with Ozymandias as a businessman and how a lot of the problems in the world are caused by just a remarkably small number of people with large businesses just doing stuff. I think I've exhausted what I want to say. Let's go ahead and vote. I can't give a, a null vote, can I? Unfortunately, no. One of these has to move forward. Uh, if only because I really don't want to read the Wanted comic again, I'm going to vote for Watchmen. <sighs> I have to agree. If we're talking about a film that is more technically ambitious and more interesting to talk about... I'm, I'm going to go ahead and vote for Watchmen because I was spared having to read the Wanted comic and I, I don't want to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <sighs> and I think it'll be interesting to watch a different version of Watchmen and see how that affects the flow, the storytelling. Yeah, we're not doing the ultimate cut again. No. <sighs> well, with our first round finally out of the way, it looks like we're moving into round two. So for issue nine, we'll be discussing Men in Black as well as Road to Perdition. Those are both so fun to watch. Oh, oh, I'm so excited. Yes, it will be a nice palate cleanser for this week. If you want to make sure to be informed as soon as this episode goes live, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Podbean, and Spotify. Until then, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thank you for tuning in.